Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 123rd episode of MGG Fast Finance, the podcast that's not afraid to tell people what a card is worth. MGG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic Single with and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via mtgprice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. And I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MGG Critic on Twitter, fresh back from Viva Las Vegas. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. James, finally back. Did you uh, enjoy your trip there? Much more than I expected to. Really? More than you expected to? Yeah, I just kind of felt like, thought it would feel like just, you know, run-of-the-mill GP, which I have been to plenty of. Um, but there is a, a little something special in Vegas that I think everybody should experience at least once. Um, now, did you enjoy the uh, city itself? I know this was your first trip. Specifically, uh, I'm impressed with the architecture. I thought that the hotels would be more cheesy than than some of them are. Um, some of them are actually fairly impressive works uh, of industrial architecture. Um, it's a pretty impressive, like from an operations and engineering perspective, that is quite the town. Um, and then between your recommendation on a restaurant and a few others that we gathered, we managed to have some excellent food. Um, Did you try the one I recommended? Yeah, we went to Rose Rabbit Lie, and that was an amazing night, actually. Was it really? You can be honest. Like, you're not going to hurt my feelings if you didn't. No, 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 no. Food was incredible. Um, That's actually owned by uh, a chef that has restaurants in Toronto. So we've we've had um, other stuff by them. And in that complex is a whole bunch of stuff, right? There's milk cookies, which I've had in LA before. Those were amazing. Um, Momofuku is in there, which is also here in Toronto. Um, so mm-hmm. we're familiar with some of this cuisine and the price point to like value ratio is really high in that whole complex. That's in Aria, I believe, and or the Cosmopolitan. Uh, yeah, yeah, Cosmo, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we had uh, a lovely dinner there. They had live performances the entire time. Alara was like tap dancing up on top of our booth with the like tap dance performer. And we got all sorts of like hilarious video clips. It was good time with the family. Cool. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm glad to hear you enjoy it because we had we had a lot of we enjoyed our meal quite a bit, but I wasn't sure uh, that it would hold for others. But I'm glad to hear it was good. Well, the, the other amazing one we had was there's a place at Mandalay Bay called Veranda, which is in the Four Seasons portion of the hotel. Mm-hmm. And uh, their Father's Day brunch on Sunday morning was just incredible. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> piles and piles of fresh crab legs being replenished every like five, 10 minutes and like sushi and sashimi and by top, top sushi chefs, all sorts of like little parfaits they had made with like stringed roast beef and like buttered mashed potatoes, like mixed in with little bits of asparagus and hot peppers. And it's just the whole thing was crazy. It was yummy, yummy, yummy. Yeah. The brunches out there can get pretty, uh, pretty wild. For sure, my friends would get them, and then uh, it was all they did until dinner. <laughs> um, awesome. Glad you had a good time. Um, it was especially sweet because my father's enough a degen- of a degenerate gambler that both his suites at Caesars and ours at Mandalay were fully comped, so it's not like we were even paying to stay there. <laughs> like, maximum EV. Um, oh. And they give a bunch of, like, credits 
for like food and entertainment and whatever, right? So we had tickets and stuff we couldn't use because we had Alara with us, which was too bad because um, there were some great Cirque du Soleil shows in town that I would have liked to check out. Uh, um, but we did make full use of the food. Yeah, that's really I, the, the reason that I'm disappointed when I don't get I didn't get to go. And the only thing I missed was the dining. That's what I wish. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing that I missed. Yeah. Like I, I don't think I, I'm dying to be back in Vegas for Vegas. Like the, the fact that the casino floors are places where you can smoke just boggles the mind. Yes. <laughs> Coming from almost anywhere else. Yeah. Um, because even with their like high tech filtration systems, it still reeks like cigarettes and walking around in there with a baby was not my favorite. No, uh, I can't imagine. So, um, but yeah, the dining I think is the high point if you're if you're not a gambler by by nature or trade. Um, but the GP was also like more much more exciting than uh, I was expecting. We'll get into that once we uh, get to story time at the end of the cast. All right. Well, let's. Uh, I'm 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 glad to be here. I'm sure you are too. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Uh, sign up today, MTGPrice.com, to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, I'm going to assume we have our usual segments this week. Top movers on into cards to watch. Then we're going to do the metagame week in review. And topic of the week will be a combination of the Las Vegas Roundup and M19 spoilers. Yeah, sounds about right. So let's get the week started here. First card up, Najila the Blade Blossom from uh, Battle Bond. Najila the Blade Blossom, blah, blah, blah. Non-foils, 10 to 13 for a small gain here, only about 30%. Um Definitely an EDH card. What is your take on this? Well, there are no foils left on TCG player below 150. Um, and they were definitely targeted on the floor at Vegas. So um, I, I think that speculation is outpacing uh, real player demand. I'm not seeing like a massive spike in Agila decks getting registered on EDH rec. Um, it does take some time for them to catch up on data there. So it's not necessarily a strong signal yet. But I, I, I pick... I don't see Najila breaking through to the top 20 commanders of all time. Um, I, I don't think the Warriors theme is all that interesting, although uh, it being five color means it will continue to get stuff to make it better over time in the same way that five color humans and modern is open ended like that. Um, so down the road, it could gain some traction and, you know, set up shop in the top 40 commanders, top 30, maybe. But um I'm not. I'm not. A hu- I'm not huge on this. I think if I was in on foils and could and could out them for thirty or forty percent, like in the first few weeks of release, I would just go ahead and do that mm-hmm. and move on. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, these tribal EDH decks kind of, you know, they are very exciting very briefly, and then everyone kind of moves on with their life. Um, so I would not be inclined to sit on them for a while. Uh, compared to something like Moldratha or Atraxa, where the the open endedness is almost infinite. You know, Adrotha is going to bring back permanence of all types every turn and Atraxa deals with any kind right. of counter. I mean, th- those two themes are much are, are much more likely to be taken in different directions over time and to get more pieces of the puzzle over time and to keep, you know, keep them in the top 20. Um, whereas these very linear tribal decks, like you were saying, um, I just feel like a lot of them have been flash in the pan. We've seen it with wizards and cats and other stuff where people are really excited. They build it and then they realize it's not actually, you know, one of their best decks. Yep, and they put I it agree. Aside. They're, they're fun brief, uh, but they don't, uh, they don't stick around. They're not enduring. Um, but the, uh, you know, what is enduring cards from revised this week, copy artifact from revised 28 to 40 for not quite a 50% 
gain, but this is a, uh, you've got reserve list here on here, uh, which sounds about right. Uh, I'm just double checking. Yes, reserve list on copy artifact. Um, so a pretty a pickup there up towards 50, uh, probably not done, I would guess, right? Like likely has some room to grow. I mean, as a, well, as a revised card, it's tough because uh, there's obviously a lot of those, but you know, for if the revised index keep rising, that seems like it's definitely one of the cards that could go with it. Despite the fact that it turns the, it, it makes an artifact slash enchantment um, and exposes you to all matter of naturalized type effects in EDH, it's still probably underplayed because copying somebody's soul ring or chromatic lantern or broken artifact X is almost always going to be a correct play. Uh, yeah, and is it, is it only copied? Uh, yeah, you can do it to other pe- your other people's too. It's artifact, or you can you can do it to yourself. Yeah, okay, you, you you can clone any artifact on the battlefield. The only downside is that you're exposed as both an artifact and an enchantment. Yeah, another uh, guild of lotus is not too bad, or uh, any. Oh, well, I guess all the ridiculous artifacts lately have been legendary. Like uh, what's his name? That dude that taught Jace how to Jace. His Ar- Elmeret's archive is an art is legendary, so you can't get away with it. But. Uh, Martin Stromgold from Ice Age, $4 to 7 for almost a double up. This is an old pick of mine. I bought these uh, a couple years ago when somebody cast a card against me and I read it and I was like, oh, damn, this thing just beats everyone's face in. Uh, so still not a big move, uh, but I'm hoping maybe this will be the one that sticks. We'll see. Um, it is reserveless and it is a creature and it does cool stuff and it's definitely underplayed. So uh, who knows? Who knows? I mean... <laughs> reserve list probably underplayed in, in EDH. Um, even if only five people a month realize that that's the case, the price keeps pushing. This is probably a $20 card down the road. I just don't know if it takes six months or six years. Yeah, well, uh, we are probably about three years into that six-year cycle from the last time I, first time I said that. So, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, exactly. So next on the list, Stonehoof Hoof Chieftain from Commander 2016, one of these only printed in a fall Commander set cards that eventually spikes, and these have been extremely reliable, so it's definitely something you want to keep your eye on. Um, this one going from 10 to $20, despite only showing up in about 3,200 EDH uh, rec decks. Um, that's about 100% gain. Um, not something I had in my portfolio, just wasn't on my radar as being particularly interesting. Um, and I'm curious to see whether buy lists will uh, come anywhere close to what this is supposedly worth right now. Yeah, this is uh, not a card that I would ever really think much of either, but uh, it's relatively popular in the format. Looks like we're getting, uh, let me just get the exact number here, 200 decks, but I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's something maybe the super casual players are playing it, so you're not seeing it on EDA Trek as much as you might, uh, but it's still popular among a large group of players you know it is it does do cool stuff like my, my sure my gold standard on buy list right now of course is apple games who has the very generous trade-in bonus if you're going to cards and they only want they're only offering six and trade and only four in cash on this so um we'll see where this is at in say four to six weeks and if the buy list catch up might be interesting to to unload mm-hmm. for anybody who's holding any um following that secure the waste from dragons of tarkir five to ten for a double up uh we've got modern control and it's in Najila. there's no this can't be this is a weird card to me to see at this price because it doesn't seem like it's good enough in Najila really and like i mean you'd play it there of course but i wouldn't think that Najila could move a card from dragons of tarkir that hard and also it does see play in modern but like also doesn't seem like yeah but like That's not that much so i i have to say i'm a bit perplexed here 
Yeah, I, I have exactly all the same feelings uh, on this card. I, I When I saw this, I assumed I had it wrong, and it must be the foils moving from 5 to 10, and I could believe in that. But we've already seen the foils move. Um, and actually, actually <laughs> I'm going to go th- through my specs from the floor later, and one of them was a, a foil secure the waist that I picked up at 10. Um, so clearly I feel uh, that there, there's something underpinning this. But, I mean, there's a combination of modern and EDH, but both of them are relatively mild, and so... Uh, you know, yeah, oh, yeah, into this. for sure. Get rid of this if you can. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a flash in a pan. Like, I, I think that it can hold a plateau on the... In, and here's where I think attrition comes into play. The concept that hardly anybody in MG Finance ever talks about, I think mistakenly so. Um, I don't think that there's not very many of this card around. I just think they're in the closet and nobody's thinking to bring them out. And so they will trickle back in the buy list, not rush back in a buy list because nobody's just sitting on play sets for them, like at the corner of their desk that they can throw into a buy list order or, or take down to the GP. It's just not even going to like be on people's radar to include it in their trade binder um, when they show up to see a buy list trader. Uh, yeah, I suppose that's possible that it's more of a, that they're just sitting in people's collections and aren't going to rush back to the market. I just call it a, like a forgotten card, right? It was, yeah. it was solid in, in standard at the time as uh, you know, sometimes you see it in Jeskai Black or whatever as like a, a one-of finisher there. Now it's a one-of in modern. Maybe people are building. I mean, it's got a relatively good synergy rate in Gila, but still, you know, I, I was surprised to see this drain this fast. So I, I think there may be some amount of speculation involved. Mm, okay. Uh Following that, we've got Academy Rector from Urza's Destiny Foils. It says 400, 850. Uh, sure. <laughs> right? Like, these are... Asking price. Yeah, like, I mean, did anyone pay 400? Maybe. I mean, uh, the, card's, well, this way. the card's awesome in EDH, and it's reserveless foil. So, maybe. Yeah, and so the number will be real one day. It's It's a dare, right? It's like, <laughs> how much do you want this? And where else have you seen it at any better of a price? On the floor at Vegas, this card was not on the move to as much as I could tell. Um, most of them were rotting in cases. I saw them in a wide range of prices, anywhere from 350 to 600. Um, I did not see any posted as high as 800 that weren't Japanese foils. Um, so I call it a card on the move that because of, you know, permanent open-ended synergies in EDH is likely to continue to gain. I think 800 you take with a grain of salt and just assume that this is a multi-hundred dollar card. Yeah. I have a foil Japanese one of these. It's real cool. Was that, an, was that, was that an MKM purchase? Mm, I think it was a... I got it in Japan. So like, how are you? Probably. I'd have to dig it up. I can tell you this much. I don't think I paid more than 100 bucks for it. That's pretty. Yeah, happy. I was pretty happy. And that. and and probably you could have done that two years ago. Yeah, and it, uh, no, that's probably when I did it. And uh, you know, but it's fine. I'm I'm not selling it. It's just sitting in my tr- my EDH binder, which I don't really sell anything out of. So, and it's reserved. Not, not selling. Card, so. <laughs> not selling anything is one of my themes for GP Vegas. But we'll get to that. <laughs> the um, next card on the list, uh, one of my tastier specs from MKM recently, a. Foil Stone Rain from 7th is apparently a $100 plus card now. In theory, moving from 75 to the lowest posted price on TCG being somewhere north of 150 um, Because Stone Rain is a modern playable card and available in 7th edition foils, that means that this like ratcheting up of um, 
price tags as supply dwindles and dwindles and dwindles is going to continue to go on. You most see this most often in modern and Ponza decks. Green, red Ponza decks have done reasonably okay lately in the format. Um, not a consistent top eighter, but the kind of thing that pops up every once in a while. And uh, I think I picked up a Japanese foil seventh um, on MKM for like 45 or 55 or something. Ooh. Ooh. Spicy. It's a spicy that, meatball. That, who knows how long that's going to take to unload. Yeah. But I'm sure it'll be at a nice number when I do. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you can find the buyer for it, that's awesome. Uh, but that's going to be not a quick mover, I'm sure, because you have to find the guy who wants to cast Stone Rain and also wants to pay $300 for a Japanese foil. And and maybe has the other three copies since his deck probably runs four of the card if it runs it at all. Yeah, right, right. Uh, that, that's the toughest thing. Like sometimes when you're going after these foreign foils, you want to make sure you get full play sets um, or maybe three, three or four. Because they, they might have one themselves that they come into and then be like, huh, I wonder if I can get the other three. Um, or they might just decide to upgrade to a full set of four. But it's pretty rare that if you've just got one, they're going to go, yes, I would like one of my cards to look different than the other three. Yeah, Stone Rain is not a card you tend to play one copy of either. If you're on that plan, you are really on it. Yeah. So not not the spec I'm expecting to flip the fastest, but I think it'll be all right. Yeah. Um, all right, so stolen strategy we talked about when we were looking at Battle Bond, and my question here, which I posted to Twitter in the same week, was whether or not it was this or Sunbird's invocation um, from last year that might see more play in EDH long term. This is the enchantment for four and a red. At the beginning of your upkeep, exile the top card of each opponent's library. Until end of turn, you may cast non-land cards from among those exiled cards, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast those spells continuing on with this theme of red getting to cast things off the top of other people's decks um and on a card frame that is going to be ignored by most competitive players but which edh players ears will perk up in the presence of um given how flexible it is uh and gaining some card advantage in a color that can sometimes have trouble with that yeah this is a cool uh a cool effect and i'm not too surprised to see it here that's a pretty big jump though i guess Battle Bond has been moving a little faster than I thought it would, and I'm not sure if that means supply is very low, if it means that we're just seeing the initial of or initial bump in demand while supply tries to catch up uh, as it finally hits shelves and players can buy it. Because um, we know EDH players tend to be slower to the draw than other markets. You know, if a card is good in modern, if a card gets spoiled and it's good in modern, all the modern players have theirs really fast. If it's good in edh nobody buys the edh card until they've finally gotten around to building the deck which can take like a month sometimes um which is not not fast enough to spike the card like this so well i mean what this tells me is that people have decided battle bond is worth targeting early because nobody's opening it anymore um we've already moved full on into the m19 hype cycle and as good as battle bond actually is to play and i'll get back to that in a bit um the you know there's two foil copies for fifteen dollars on TCG Player and where is that replenishment going to come from? Vendors are going to be getting fresh Battle Bond allocations shortly, but the question is how much are they actually going to take on, given how little of it is getting played out there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not a lot. I mean, you'd have. I mean, it's probably a cons- It's a, it's a it's another conspiracy, right? Like conspiracy. It's another conspiracy, conspiracy too. too. I mean, that was what DJ was like saying right up front was like dj and i have both targeted conspiracy 2 stuff along the way 
Um, and he's been pretty vocal um, on Brainstorm Brewery talking about um, how Conspiracy 2 has like the best EV ratio of any imprint set or available box set from the last few years. And I think that Battle Bond is going to be pretty similar, right? Like you can get on an eBay coupon, you might be able to get boxes of Battle Bond or, or Conspiracy 2 like in the $70 range, which is just ridiculous given given the reasonable EV that's in, that's within. And some of these foils, if you get lucky and hit, um, especially if you track down some Japanese boxes or something, you're going to be in some real good shape. And, but this is still, I mean, well, yeah, BattleBond is definitely still in print because it just came out like three weeks ago. If that, yeah, but I talked, I talked to Tokyo MTG, um, probably the second biggest, uh, online vendor from Japan that ships overseas and has an English friendly website. Yeah. And the owner there said they're not even going to post any cards from BattleBond. Like I went there looking for deals. There was nothing. They had literally nothing in stock. And I asked him on Twitter and he said, yeah, we're not going to be doing that. And that is a direct reflection of the fact that nobody in Japan plays this kind of casual nonsense. Oh, that, so I was going to say, why isn't he posting them? It's just because the market there doesn't want them at all. Yeah. yeah. So th- that leads me to believe that there are bo- there are Japanese boxes lying around at a pretty decent price in Japan, but they, they aren't allowed to sell those direct overseas. So they have to trickle through secondary channels. Hmm. Um, you know, a judge goes over there and brings back six boxes or something. They have to travel um, through Twitter DMs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, I will definitely be looking to pick up some Japanese Battle Bond because that's, you know, Japanese foil doubling season and a whole bunch of other stuff that will be very hard to come by at some point. Yeah, it does sound like that is the uh, the set to beat these days at the moment, at least, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, I guess I, I didn't think it would be quite that popular, but uh, it certainly has hit a lot of marks, I think, for players. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as stolen strategy goes, like, I think this is like a useful card in EDH. I don't think it's going to be like a slam dunk home run in every deck. I think this is wholly, the, the price shift here is wholly representative of relatively shallow supply representing to speculators and vendors that they can go ahead and jump in without much fear. Um, and, you know, people have clearly done that. I mean, we saw Medina talking up uh, Foil Najilas like multiple times on Twitter last week. So my immediate question was, how many did you buy? And he copped to at least, you know, 10 or a dozen mm-hmm. or something. Um, which means he probably yeah. bought more. And and if, you know, he's doing that and others like him are doing that and some vendors have jumped into the ring, then no big surprise that this won't be the, the first or last Foil from this set to see movement. And what that signals is you should take a look at the other stuff you were considering and go ahead and jump in because I don't think you're going to see a better point yeah i uh, i you know honestly i hadn't gotten that deep on battle bond because i normally mm, sort of ignore really new sets because i'm like ah the supply is really high there's kind of a glut at the moment i'll wait um until it's had a little bit of time to settle but man it looks like uh i really need to make a point of going through and looking to see what battle bonds got because now might be the time to pull the trigger on all that stuff so i, I bought bumped into josh from uh command zone uh, in the lineup at Starbucks in the convention center. And he was saying hi, and we were exchanging pleasantries. And then my one pointed question I decided to throw past him was whether he thought Spellseeker from Battle Bond was going to be an auto-include in blue decks. He said, not mm-hmm. really. Like, it's solid and people will play it, but there's just so many other mystical tutor-style effects in blue that cost less um, that can go get Cyclonic Rift that if your game plan is you want to have three or four ways to fetch it, you've already got them. Hmm. It sounds like it kind of makes sense. Uh, and that, 
And that basically, like, as a three-mana version, it's, like, the most expensive of your available options, and the 1-1 body doesn't help you in any way unless you're, like, blinking it or something in, like, in a very specific deck. Like, what's the guy from Conspiracy Mm -hmm. that blinks everything? Brago. Right. So in a Brago deck, it probably still works, but... And other people will run it, you know, as an alternative to some of the many other options. Um, But it's not going to be a Cyclonic Rift uh, level home run. Okay, so it gives us a feel for for what's out there. It makes guess. me feel like the forty five dollars uh, foils uh, on a rare are probably far too high, okay. unless you believe there's legacy okay. play on the card, which is something that seems like a stretch for me. Yeah, I do not, and it's legacy, so who cares? Nobody plays that stupid format. <laughs> um, after that is Alter Bone from Ice Age. Ice Age. Yep. Oh God, eight to forty. What is what is this world that we live in altar of bone is a green white sorcery all right if your card is called altar of bone why are you a sorcery and it's sorcery come on yeah uh as an additional <laughs> this is great i don't think i've ever actually read this card before so it's a card called altar of bone and it's a sorcery it's green white and the first line of text is an additional cost to cast at sack a creature very green very totally white on color <laughs> color by <laughs> Search your library for a creature card, reveal it, and put it into your hand. So it's a it's a tutor for creatures that also requires you to sack a dude. Um, okay, I mean, I guess that's a fine isn't card. It just diabolic intent in different colors. Uh, yeah, except intent is any card because it's just uh, yeah, except diabolic intent is better because it's any card, not a creature right. card. So Whereas I saw a bunch of no nothing saying like, "Oh, this thing moving means MTG finance is retarded." I was like, eh, hold on. <laughs> it is reserveless, and it's probably underplayed in EDH. In green decks, where you're creature-focused and all your combos revolve around creatures, a Diabolic Intent in your colors is totally a fine playable card. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not it's not amazing, but it's definitely, like, fine. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not like fine. green's hurting for ways to, like, find stuff. Uh, I guess it's just the, the rarity of that card, I'm sure, that makes it that. Uh, valuable yeah i mean it's fine but fine in edh say a thousand people want one a year at some point or even if it's a (laughs) hundred you don't have a hundred copies left on the internet so does this thing deserve to be forty dollars if it was ever reprinted heck no but if it's never going to be reprinted can it hold 40 maybe not but there was copies sitting rotting in your binder if you got an ice age binder you've got four of these sitting there that you pick up at like 10 cents or whatever and if you can get 15 or 20 on this at some point, awesome. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I agree. It's probably not a $40 card, but it likely wasn't the 40 cents card it was before because it does do something and most players didn't even know it existed. I mean, I forgot. Right. And I'm pretty sure I buy listed them in a recent buy list order to Abu in and around 350. Ooh. So, so Bummer. a little early on that. <laughs> um. After that, I mean, their buy list is still their buy list is still three fifty. So, oh, wow. and the, and they only want nine copies. So it's not. I, I don't see this getting this buy list hitting twenty anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I think the larger part problem with this card and uh, what's his name, Martin Stromgold, and stuff like that is just they're they're a little bit of a pain in the butt to parse and uh, players the, the the volume of players that you need to like know about the card and want to play with it is just too low. 
Um, so I think if, for instance, they reprinted, if, if, if they like did a really small print run of Martin Stromgold uh, in a modern border with updated wording and put it in a commander product so that everyone like knew about it and saw it, I bet the price on the old ones would skyrocket. But without that, um, I think it'll probably like throwing a bone and Martin, all those types of cards, alter bone will just languish more than it would otherwise. Cause people just don't know about it. Yep. All right. So next on the list, we've got bringer of the black Dawn from fifth Dawn. This is a Joda card and because it's basically a reusable vampiric tutor there. Um, it's, uh, going in theory gone from two dollars to ten we already saw the foil move that's a 400 percent gain if you were in on joda specs early you're going to be liking the looks of that um but you really need the buy list to catch up for you to get much of an advantage here and i'm not seeing any really tasty buy list numbers for this yet um well yeah and i talked about this a couple weeks ago i I recommended the foil and then like a week later the foil spiked so it's uh definitely the non-foils i like a lot less uh especially that could be pretty reprintable um but apparently it's quite popular if uh, if the non-foils have moved this much. Actually, I, I, I'll i bite my tongue. Abu's not offering anything on it, but Card Kingdom will give you five eighty five in credit. If you picked them up at two bucks, you're 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 doing just fine. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you didn't miss. It's more of the concern about. Uh, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Whatever. I have a dog of a puppy <laughs> distracted me. Just totally distracted me there. Uh, all right. Pu- puppy beats. Yeah. Uh, like he, I have to check for him like every, you know, 60 seconds to make sure he's not eating something. Uh, <laughs> it's, like, it's like a baby. I get it. Yeah, it really is. Um, all right. So Hammerheim from legends, terrible land, almost entirely unplayable. Um, but in theory, gone from $3 to 19 because when you run out of things that aren't on the reserve list, go ahead and just start targeting the other things in the sets that the reserve list cards came from. <laughs> yeah, sure. Just anything anything on reserve list, buy it, buy it. You heard it first. Just buy everything on reserve list, you guys, no matter how playable it is. Right, but then just after you're done with the reserve list, go ahead and get stuff like this that isn't even on the it's reserve adjacent. list. <laughs> reserve list adjacent. He, he hangs out with the guys from the reserve list, so he cool. might get hot. He might get his own album. Yeah, we're gonna be we're gonna be friends. We're definitely gonna be friends. Um, so, garbage. Hammerheim buy lists. You're gonna have trouble tapping into if you're buying it now. But if you were in on these, like just scattershot buying them at two or three bucks a while back, you're doing all right. Like apparently, Card Kingdom's already offering nine forty three. Nine forty three on Hammerheim. Yep. Huh. I mean, if you have a true near mint legends copy, uh, I mean, I guess that's pretty rare in and of itself. It's, but that's purely a collector's item. And I mean, they're not, they, I mean, they could reprint it, but nobody's going to want it. I mean, it's strictly better than Mountain. It removes all land walking abilities if you tap it, it still makes red. That's true. It's a legendary mountain. <laughs> It would have been pretty good in the in the beta draft last night because uh, Landwalk was a beating. <laughs> yes, that's true. All right, so next on the list, Winnin's Elite, a single printing foil from Origins, which was an uncommon. In theory, going from three fifty to thirty dollars. In in the- on the back of Modern Elves four of status, um, and Elves decks occasionally making top eights. 
Um, it's only got the single foil printing. If you see it get reprinted again, that foil will crash. So this is definitely something that if you happen to be holding, you know, a foil you opened in a draft or something to sit in your binder or you've got them in your elf deck, you might want to consider unloading anywhere over 15, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, I am inclined to agree with you there that this is, um, not a $30 foil and also eminently reprintable, especially with the return of the corsets and what they're doing with that. So, uh yeah if you can cash out on this then absolutely i mean it was reprinted recently in dual decks elves versus inventors so i think it's safe for a while um especially since that wasn't a foil um but card kingdom is only paying five bucks on it in, in trade so uh, you may have trouble exiting anywhere near the quoted price yeah yeah and it's not so much that it's going to get reprinted tomorrow but this is the type of card you could be like well it said it was 30 so i'm going to wait until i get my 30 and then it's been a year and then they do print it again and then you really do get caught out so i would not be too greedy with this this next one has similar problems sasuke son of sashiro from champions of kamigawa is a foil that is important if you're playing a casual snake deck and otherwise not much else um in theory the foils went from a dollar 50 to 15 but you Card Kingdom and their ilk are only offering about a dollar on these foils. So good luck unloading them. Yeah, I think I picked up a bunch back when we were something, some commander product was coming out that I don't remember at all. And I liked the snakes uh, and I recommended these. Um, so, I mean, that was a while ago. I don't know if I can really call that a victory, but uh, so it looks like they moved a little bit. But yeah, there's no way these are going to be like. You know, these aren't doubling season. At some point, there will be a snake commander and these foils. Th- this card will be included, but not in foil. And the foils will finally give you an exit point. But it's the kind of thing you wouldn't want to be holding more than a like a small handful of this card because you're never going to be able to unload them one by one in like a large volume. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, finish off the week with the Jayam Day Tome. Uh, foil 7th edition copies. $2 up to 43 Frankly, I don't believe that foil 7th edition Giant Day Tomes, Giant Day Tomes were $2. Like, I don't believe that that was true. Uh, Somebody had just, one post, like one posted or something with $2.99 shipping, probably. I, I, I don't know. I, th- this seems like an errant data point because it's a rare, a foil 7th edition rare card. Um, I don't know. Uh, whatever in any case apparently they sold out they're now expensive uh i don't know they're these are not a 40 dollar card um but i can see them being i don't know 20 30 uh, again they, obscure seventh foils you need to be connected to seventh foil collectors or you're gonna have a hard time yeah moving very much of that product yeah who who wants this i mean like your your market for this is people that want to play old school but don't want to pay for the original printing so their play group agrees to make all cards from those sets legal regardless of printings but also wants to have the cool version of it so <laughs> have a lot of buyers there <laughs> all right let's move on to some stuff you do want to be holding uh cards to watch for this week and um, this first one comes with a cute little story um my significant other is essentially scared to gamble. So every time we go anywhere that has casinos, which is every so often since my my father and his wife are degenerate gamblers, um, that will throw all sorts of money onto a slot machine without really thinking through the consequences. <laughs> um, Alyssa likes to take $20 onto the floor by herself and without any pressure from surrounding friends and family 
and then turn it into some money and then run screaming from the floor with her little ticket. Does zero and count usually, as some money? <laughs> no, she always makes money. She, I mean, always meaning she's done it a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> the um, uh, this time she went onto the floor of the P- Paris casino mid afternoon on Sunday, put in twenty bucks. Three minutes later, reappeared with a hundred. <laughs> Um, handed it over to me and told me to speculate with it. So when I got over to the floor, I saw a really sweet set of altered uh, goblin guides. Beautiful, beautiful set. Um, but it wasn't really a spec, a spec target. It would have just been for the personal collection and they wanted 110. So instead, I went over to a dealer that uh, we had been talking to about an alpha. Uh, my dad was trying to pick up an alpha graded Badlands and these same guys had uh, $80 boxes of Japanese Kalavesh. Um, so towards the end of the show, I talked him into two boxes for $150, handed that off. Uh, I think I, I was like a dollar short in my pocket, so I only paid $1.149. <laughs> uh, really getting that oh, edge. <laughs> what, what, one of those last, last minutes of the show things where the guy just shakes his head at you and hands over the stuff. <laughs> He's just like, oh my god! He just gave me his bus fare. I guess I'll give him a dollar off. Um, so my thinking was, I've never seen a masterpiece come out of a foreign box of Kaladesh, um, and I wanted to see if I could pull it off. And I was going to go back and sit by Cliff while he was playing Battle Bond. Um, so I figured I'd sh- show Cliff my luck in person. And sure enough, I managed to pull out a masterpiece, Solemn Similicrum, and about including that, about two hundred dollars total in cards in the two boxes. Um, Hit on every planeswalker except Sahili, got nine dual lands in Japanese, all of which are like eight to twelve dollars. Hmm. Um, pulled Chandra Torch of Defiance Japanese, um, whole bunch of good stuff. So, what language was the masterpiece in? Well, of course, it's in English, <laughs> but that's fine because Solemn Similicrum is has posted up at about 90. I mean, it's no soul ring, but it's a $90 card. And then I went looking to see how much inventory there is. And there's almost none. Um, and keep in mind, this is in 60,000 plus decks on EDH rec. So now that if inventory has slowed, this was bought out a few months ago, right? But an inventory has trickled back into the market. When these things go into EDH decks, they don't come back out very, very rarely. And they're not reprinting this anytime soon in this form. So, with maybe 20, 30 copies available in North America online right now, I think these are a slam dunk to pick up at 90 on the premise that they'll hit 130, 140, 150 in a year or two. I mean, I think that that honestly, that price is probably too low in that time frame too long. I think sure. it could be, I mean, it feels like this could be a 150, 200 in like three months, four months. Yeah. Not that it will be necessarily, but I think the ingredients are there. I mean, it's hard to find a card that's a masterpiece that is more popular in EDH, right? Like soul the, ring. The, the masterpieces, the masterpieces that are obvious in EDH that just like work in almost every deck, like mana crypt, mana vault, chromatic lantern, etc., um, are not ones that any of us should be sleeping on. We shouldn't have been sleeping. Uh, keep in mind, we got these at like 40 or 45 in Europe yeah. up front. And, and even at 90, I like it. Like it's doubled doubled up from the original buy-in price and still looks good. Yeah, you think about it some more and you're like, huh, I should have more of these. I mean, I'm certainly happy to open one <laughs> for, for essentially for free. And uh, But I'm not in any rush to sell it, put it to you that way. No, no, I, I, I have a, a fair bit of uh, masterpieces floating around and I am also not, not, uh, not in a position where I'm looking to get rid of them anytime soon, just kind of like biding my time. It's basically a, you know, how long can I bring myself to wait type of deal? 
All right. Tell me about your first pick. Oh, my first pick of the week. Uh, so I'm kind of making all of my picks based on the assumption that 9394 EDH will be a thing. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's a, a big if. Uh, so keep that in mind. I don't know if the format's going to get there. I don't know if it's really all that popular, but I've seen people talking about it. And uh, given how lucrative EDH has been for us and Magic in general, it would be foolish to not at least be aware of the opportunities there. Uh, so I'm going to start off with Jaloom Tome from Antiquities. Uh, copies currently around $10. Um, this is the, uh, let me pull it up to make sure to give you the right tax. It's a three mana artifact, pay two to loot, draw a card, then discard a card. Um, so looting is going to be really good. Is, is generally pretty good in EDH. It's especially good in a format where the power level is going to be dramatically different between the worst card and the best card in your deck. Normal EDH doesn't have that problem. Normal EDH uh, the power level is generally pretty consistent among the car- amongst the cards in your deck because you have so many to choose from and you can build a real machine. Card pool is a lot smaller here. You're going to have tens and you're going to have like threes. Um, so Jaloom Tome is especially valuable. Now, I will point out that this card, like some of the other ones I may talk about, have plenty of other printings, right? So the rules for Channel Fireball right now are that you can play a card so long as it is the original art and original border. So that means that the Antiquities Jaloom Tome has the same art and border as the Chronicles one. So you can play the Chronicles version as well as the Antiquities one. Now that may change, they may, that may not change. It's hard to imagine that if uh, 9394 EDH does kind of pick up steam that they won't try and allow the original art border thing uh, simply because it will be so hard to field a 100-card deck if you can't do that. Um, but this is still going to be the original copy, and it will be the the coolest version of that card, right? Like the ultra-original Black Border printing of any card in 93-94 will be the best copy, especially because you can't play the Foil 7th Edition ones, um, most likely. So supply on $10 copies is not high. Um let me get the number. Where is it? No, I don't. Let me jump in with this comment. It nobody that's been bitching about the movement on reserve list cards or old school cards has any right to complain if they help to support a format <laughs> called ninety three ninety four eight EDH, which anybody with ha- two brain cells to rub together can figure out is going to push the price of cards hard if it ever goes anywhere. Yeah. So I, I finally found it. I closed the tab on accident. Um, yeah, currently about $10. There are like less than 15 copies on TCG player right now. Not that there was ever probably a deep well, but, uh, so there you go. I see this as the type of card that might not be terribly popular in normal 60 card, 93, but if you're playing EDH becomes a lot more interesting. And I don't have tremendous confidence in this format emerging anytime soon, at least in any kind of like sizable quantity, but there's like no risk here. Because the buy lists on these cards are essentially the purchase price that you're listing. <laughs> yes. So you can you can out these back to Abu or Card Kingdom and trade for at least what you're paying now, and it may rise over time. If it doesn't in the time frame that you allocate for yourself, you can get back out very very easily. Because regardless of whether these are ever actually played anywhere, these are still the original printings of these cards in sets that people are still trying to finish and collect. And you know, for every guy that tries to finish a set of 
legends or antiquities or Arabian Nights or whatever, a whole nother set of these cards disappears off the market. Yeah, they're definitely, um, if the format goes nowhere, still probably not going to cost you any money. The worst case is that you had to sit on a card that was worth 15 bucks for a, you know, a couple months before you decide to get rid of it. Yeah. I mean, a- Abu is paying 1050 on antiquities, Jalem Tome and 2590 on desert twister okay uh well uh, now that you bring it up i guess i'll fire off my second one real quick uh is desert twister from arabian nights uh the arabian nights copies are 25 so they're pricier again very low inventory i also think there was less arabian nights than antiquities but i'm not sure about that um but desert twister like antiquities has a bunch of uh printings after the fact so well you've got the arabian nights was also revised uh there's the summer edition revised so you know that's a choice too uh fourth and fifth are all legal it isn't until you hit mercadian masks that it's not anymore but um desert twister original ones pretty pretty nasty and destroys any card in play just six mana destroy any card so in green um seems very good in that format so Still sees some play in 93, 94, regardless of EDH, and also mm-hmm. sees some minor amount of play in EDH decks that can't afford to have better kill spells. Yeah. Um, so if you're yeah. mono green and you got to get rid of something, you and you absolutely positively have to get rid of something, it does do the job. Yeah. And as I jumped ahead on the buy list prices in the same situation as Jalem Tome, where you can easily unload it if you have to. Yeah. All right. So what do you got for your two? So my last pick is Vorin Klex, uh, or oh sorry, I guess I got one ahead of that, but we'll jump into this one first. So Vorin Klex, Voice of Hunger, foils out of the much maligned uh, Iconic Masters. Um, it doesn't matter how badly a set is received. Um, in fact, it is to your benefit if there is a good card in the set that people actually want, but people open less of the set than they might have otherwise, and that is exactly the case here. Um, Vorin Klex is a mythic out of Iconic Masters. The foils have been drying up. There are very few, relatively few left on the internet in and around $15 or $16, and there's a real steep ramp headed up to about 30 So I think you can easily move in on foil Vorin Klexes and assume you're going to get three to five years before another reprint, at least in foil, um, and that... You know, I would think this shows up in a commander deck in two or three years or something, but it won't be in foil, at least not so far. Um, so looking for a double up somewhere in, inside 18 months, I think that's pretty reasonable given that it's in 9,000 EDH decks. Uh, yeah, that seems reasonable. And Vorclax was quite good. Um, is quite good, I should say. Real jerk card. Uh, and IMA is probably close to bottoming out here, so... And he used to be 30 bucks, I think, right? Yeah, so this is definitely poised to get back there um, as long as you give him 18 months, two years. There are actually like 10 or 15 cards like this in that are rares or mythics in IMA that are worth taking a look at the ramps on the foils already. And we'll probably cover some again in a future episode. One of the other cards that caught my eye here this week is Chalice of the Void foils out of M25, the other master set that nobody liked. Um... But the foils are, again, looking at a relatively steep ramp. You can pick them up now around $70. Um, There aren't that many lying around. Chalice of the Void, when it's played, is played as a four of. You see it in Modern and Legacy. Um, And that leads me to believe that before you ever see a reprint of this, these foils will get back up over $100. Um, Yeah, so do you you like this despite the the, uh, invention? Yeah, I think I, I think inventions are relatively unaffected and in fact maybe bolstered 
by uh, a reprinting of a card because it, be, it reminds people that there's an even better version out there. They end up tripping over it when they go searching for the card on various websites, TCG and eBay and what have you, or they see somebody running the masterpiece version and think, oh, I could upgrade. So like, for instance, they announced, we're going to talk about this shortly, but they announced Crucible of Worlds for M19. And I don't think that hurt, like signals a sell off of the masterpieces in the slightest. Um, ditto judge promos. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say I did briefly contemplate whether uh crucible world's inventions get better with it being reprinted into standard because now you can play your inventions in standard oh yeah i mean crucible of worlds being in standard probably helps masterpieces (laughs) if there's a deck that wants them because yes somebody will decide to pull uh, pull a masterpiece and go hey i can play this in standard this season and when i'm done with it i can put it in my edh decks yeah, or like, oh, I kind of want this for my EDH deck, but I don't know. And then it shows up in standard and you're like, wait, so I can play this for the next two years in standard? Oh, well. And and then I still have it for EDH too? Like, sure, now I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think it just keeps moving the masterpieces up. Um, so yeah, master sets, they might have sucked overall in terms of your ability to crack boxes. In fact, I think M25 was the worst boxes I've ever opened. Um, <laughs> uh, the two that I picked up. Um, despite my di- steeply discounted price on them. Uh, but select sync foils um, don't need that long to bottom out. And we're, you know, more than six months in on IMA and closing in on that for M25. So it's st- time to start looking at the ramps. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. Okay, so why don't we move on to segment three here, our metagame week in review. Uh, Vegas. So, Vegas yeah, was... That- modern so uh, probably the most probably the most most important metagame detail from gp vegas um is that banding is op (laughs) do you want to explain that for our listeners it 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 was it no one most of our listeners probably don't even know how banding works but uh it turns out that in beta rochester draft it's pretty ridiculous sure yeah uh now see i didn't watch any of the games so You'll have to excuse my lack of knowledge about what you're referencing here. Uh, but I, I assume... Well, like basically, basically, if you're blocking with like all of your... If your creatures have banding and they can block as a as a group and you get to choose where the damage goes, it's like impossible to attack into you. <laughs> and there's hardly any flyers in the format. Okay. Um, yeah, that's pretty savage. But okay, yeah, wait, that's, we, that's where that's why I said land walking was so important, right? Because then you just get to waltz on. So wait, so hold on. Before we get to the beta draft, let's just talk about the modern event really quick. Take taken down by Matt Nass with KCI, which gives back him, to back. I believe right. It's his last three, the last three modern Grand Prix that he has attended. He has gone second, first, first, all with KCI. Uh, which so, which is pretty wild. I I would have to argue that there is probably no player in Magic's history that has earned that many pro points with one deck in that like few events, right? Like the greatest concentration of pro points with a deck. Um, and and let me point out a sell call then, uh, KCI. <laughs> sell the shit out of kci but, but no we haven't we did not talk about that like that did not appear on our list here i don't even know if it's moved well like, that I, that, that just happened and vendor it wasn't even remotely on buy list on the floor at vegas before it happened but the uh, i think abu is already offering there are 20 vendors on tcg with copies right now and you know it jumps between 15 and 20 
So there's a fair bit out there right now. And foils are like 60 and 70. Uh, Abu is offering 1360 on non-foils. It's a slam dunk buy list. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty easy. Yeah, it's pretty- uh, my in on those is between three and five in two groupings, one in 2017 and one this mm-hmm. spring. I think in, you know, the, the obvious question is, is should this be banned? Uh, that's a good question. It's now, it's now. Oh, running, yeah. Right? I mean, if you have a deck that goes second, first, first, that's pretty unreal. But what's that, that is almost instantly like probably should be banned. What's weird about this is it's only one guy. And it's not like well, uh, it, it it was, but the sixth place finish here was Eli Cassis also. Yeah, and Eli Cassis has been playing, yeah, Cassis. doing this type of shit forever too. So I guess, but you're not, you're not and, looking and, at, and I think, and I actually think, I think Zach Elsick just missed top eight. Also and I, which I, I believe so. I'd heard that as well. Um, but Zach Elsick is like you're looking at like Matt Nass is a very talented player who clearly knows how to play the deck. Zach Elsick is a dyed in the wool mono combo player who does this like day in and day out. And then you're like, cause he's a very strong player, but you're not seeing like the top 32 doesn't have 15 KCI decks. Um, right. So, so your point is that so few players will switch over to these type of type of decks because they require such technical play that it's unlikely to dominate in the, in the same way, even if it's as broken as some people think it is, that it's not going to be like Eldrazi winter because just people are not going to switch over to the deck. Yeah. And I think that that also probably insulates it against it being banned because you have to be extraordinarily good to play the deck and wizards is going to look and go, well, this deck's really good, but if only there's only a handful of people in every GP room that could conceivably pull it off. It's probably okay if that deck is too good. That was kind of the same thing that happened with um, Time Spiral uh, back in Legacy. There was a period where people were like, this is definitely the best deck in the format, but you also had the uh, High Tide. That's what it was called. It was called High Tide. But you also had to own like three Candelabras or four Candelabras to play it. So it was like, this might be the best deck in the format, but no one can actually, there's like three people that can actually field the cards to play it. So it, nobody doesn't get banned because it just can't dominate the scene. So I think we need to see what happens in Barcelona because that's the next modern GP end of the month. Um, if you saw it show up again there, then I think it would definitely be on on the agenda as a possibility for the Pro Tour. More to the point, I think you're going to get at least like a few weeks here to get out on the card. And I don't see there being a tremendous amount of reprint risk. I think you're making good points about uh, the insulation it has from banning. But Wizards is also has a history of knee-jerk reaction. And if we get it, a couple more times in the top eight, then they may just get rid of it for optics. Yeah, that's, that's, it's definitely, it's not, not a target. It's, uh, there are reasons why you might not want to, despite it having that level of performance, but we will, uh, just have to see. I, I'm, I'm going to dig through my stuff and sell any that I have floating around because now I'm just like, eh, I'm not playing it anytime soon. And I don't really want to walk face first into Matt Nass winning another GP. And then it just instant getting instant banned. Yeah, and the thing is that they're not shy about getting rid of a card like this that nobody needs, wants, and it's not a popular deck. Um, yeah. If you've got a deck that's like 40% of the meta and it's running like a $400 place out of something, like Four Goyce or something, you're going to think a lot harder about whether you ban it. But a combo deck that's annoying to play against where you basically goldfishing, that's that's exactly the kind of thing they, they're happy to like 
you know, laser target out of the meta and and make sure that things stay diverse. Now, that being said, the rest of this top eight looked pretty solid. I mean, this especially if you look at it in the grand scheme of things against all the other top eights in the last year, this has been a format that has been constantly cycling through its the evolution of its meta. Um, this week we had two green mono green Tron and two KCI, but we also had humans, Grixis Shadow, Bant Company, and Jeskai Control. So I mean, overall, that's that's a pretty healthy place to be. It is. Uh, I'm going to pause because I checked my email where you were talking and uh, sold a $400 Soul Ring masterpiece. Nice so, work. Uh, I got- that is a and I and I don't bring this up to like brag, right? I want to very clearly point out this is not me just you know pouting my prowess of selling a magic card but rather but the demand is real paying for this card like someone put that their credit card into the machine to get that card i i can back it up for you there i got a quebec vendor re- referred a in-store client to me to on the assumption i would have some um because they're sold out and the guy contacted me from quebec while i was in vegas and i said well i'm i'm not selling any of mine um, I only have a few left and they're in decks um, and I don't see any reason to rush, but I'm holding a couple from one of my trading partners in the UK and he told me he wanted to sell. So let me check in with him. And the guy tried to, you know, float at a $300 number <laughs> and I just laughed at him. Um, and, and then he said like, okay, well, what's your best? And I said, well, you know, considering the fees, this guy's going to pay, like, you know, he, he was, he wanted 400, but he'll probably take 375, which, you know, meets him in the middle on fees. And then he said, well, I, you know, I'll think about it. And then by the time I had checked in with the guy in the UK, he said, well, no, actually, I, you know, what do you think is going to happen? I said, well, I think there's a pretty good chance it hits 500 within the year. There's hardly any inventory. It's not really coming back into the market very fast. He said, well, let's hold then. So then by the guy, time the guy sent me an email that said, well, what's your PayPal? <laughs> <laughs> Where he realized he, he may have blown his mm-hmm. opportunity. Um, you know, I had to get back to him and say no at 375, which is, you know, the, the card, the card isn't going down anytime soon. No. And I am not good. I have, I'm going to pull out another soul ring and, and I am not going to list it at 400. I'll probably list it at like 425. Yeah. Um, and I'll just kind of turn it up a little bit. Cause like the last one I sold was at like 350. I'm like, no, we're going to turn it up just a little bit and just a little bit. Uh, and, and in case people have forgotten, like the entry point on these was between 74 and 110. When we were picking yeah, them up. Well, I, I think I'm through all of the ones that I paid that little for. These are probably the ones that I paid a bit more for, but still uh, did not pay $400 for it. Let's just say that. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, yeah. So the modern metagame overall pretty good. KCI, bit of a warning point. Uh, looks like a solid buy list. Um, let's talk about some other stuff that went down at uh, Las Vegas. Uh, cute little stories I can share with everybody. Um, First off, I think that having uh, deliberately not registered for any main events, and I didn't even run back the beta qualifiers, despite uh, being pretty interested, um, strongly recommend if you want to get the most out of your experience, given, you know, how much is on offer in a place like Vegas, you know, go over there for four or five, six hours a day, hang out with some friends, meet some people, say hi to like notable personalities or whatever, do some shopping at the booths, play a side event, get the whole thing going. Make sure you get some good food, get some solid reservations, go check out a concert or a show, like make it a truly memorable experience where you're not just playing 12 hours of the same format all day or something. 
Uh, I mean, if you're on that pro tour grind, whatever, but for the rest of you, you're going to get way more out of it if you break up your day and, and try to cram a bunch of different kinds of moments in. Uh, yeah, I have to complete agree completely that it's kind of feels a little like deja vu. The worst, possibly the worst way you can spend your time at GP Vegas is playing in the main event. Um, unless you are trying to hit bronze or silver, uh, it's essentially not worth the price of entry. And you can do side events. Uh, you can do a lot of cool things in the city. And at the best part is hanging out with your friends. And for no other reason than if you do the main event, it's really hard to go out for a good dinner. And for God's sake, that's that's why that's why you do all of this. So you can hang out with your buddies and go eat ridiculous food in Las Vegas. Uh, so, you know, keep that in mind. It's it. I, I can understand playing the main event once, you know, if you've never done it before. I played in it for the first two Vegases. Um Cause it's exciting and you know, it's big and it's huge and you feel like you're part of it. But you know, the, the whole, like, wow, I'm part of the biggest GP ever. Uh, Vegas is not that anymore. It lost that sort of appeal. Um, you know, I think the largest event here had like 3000 players or something like that, where the second Vegas had like 9,700 or 8,000, 9,000, something like that. So that's not happening again. Um, so just, just soak in the city and the social, environment don't worry about playing in a 3000 person gp that you have point nine zero nine zeros one chance of winning yeah i mean it was really nice to just be able to wander the floor and have like listeners come up and say hi all sorts of shout out to people that came up and like wanted to chat about specs or show off stuff they'd bought or talk about how they were doing in events or you know whatever and thank us for uh, stuff we've done on cast or in articles um, that's super fun. And then also to like say hi to people that we've been, we had been collaborating with. Like I met Jason and Cliff, um, in person for the first time, got to say hi to Saffron Olive, got to say hi to Rachel, um, got to say hi to the guys from, uh, command zone and, you know, some of the old school, uh, magic employees were wandering. Marrow was all over the place all weekend, you know, entertaining people's like <laughs> fan, fan, dewy eyed fan, uh, explosions in his direction like left right and center and these guys like kept a cool head and a smile on their face like through a four-day weekend and these were long days um including like the you know this (laughs) the beta draft went to like midnight or something like by the time they got all this shit cleaned up um after the fact and and had cleared the hall Speaking of the beta draft, this is one of the more exciting things. In case you haven't heard about this and you've been living under a rock. Who could there possibly was... be listening to this podcast and not know about yeah. that? Just in case you weren't clear on the circumstances, there was a series of side events running at Vegas that were um, Dominaria sealed, I believe. You had to run and run it back 5-0 to get into a top eight draft, Dominaria again. If you won that draft, you earned your way by going 8-0, essentially, through the course of those two limited events, you could earn your way into a beta Rochester draft that they held last night. So in terms of EV, main event versus that, it wasn't even close, right? Like um, there, yeah, that, people that went people that went, I think, 12 and 3 didn't cash the GP, I'm pretty sure. No, 11-4 was not guaranteed the cash. Okay. So, but if you went if you went 8-0. In, in a limited format where the competition was not full of pros, you had a chance to sh- draft beta where the EV of just sitting down at that table was like five grand. 
Oh yeah, probably more than that, right? Like, well, I mean, so the the winning deck was actually like full, probably full of a few thousand dollars in gradable cards. Like, it, like depending on how many of them are nine point fives or tens. Um, if they're all just like eights to nines coming out of the pack, then a little less. Um, but I mean, an amazing event, really great EV to participate in, and. The easily the most exciting draft I've ever watched. I basically risked being a little late for my flight to like show up on the floor in the evening and then and then see what was up. And there was about a hundred people standing around watching that. And uh, Ben Stark managed to claim first pick on an beta underground sea pack fresh and a beta mox emerald. Yeah, he's uh, <laughs> scum, scum of the earth with that nonsense. <laughs> Way to lose the draft and come out yeah, winning anyway. Right. Um, and, and the guy who won, um, well, some totally opened Underground Sea, Scrubland Plateau, Time Vault, Wheel of Fortune, Mox Emerald. Uh, I think it was Martin Yuza who had top-aided the GP, oh, by really? the way, um, that that also top-aided the, the, beta qual- the, the beta draft and then opened Time Walk. <sighs> So his his time walk was the equivalent of of top aiding four GPs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were saying I saw some hand wringing today about how bad the payouts are on the main event, which is you know pretty much true. Hard to argue, hard to argue that. Well, especially when you're like, no one even cared who was top in the top eight of the limited GP because there was two GPs. There was a modern GP and a limited GP at Vegas. But by the time those guys were top eight drafting, everyone was just like, come on, come on. We want like the feature area to do the beta draft. And everyone's just milling around waiting for that to go down. Yeah, you had like Kibler and Martel were canceling their flights and I'm sure or moving their flights. And I'm sure a bunch of other people were too. Um, I, I've got a, I've got a picture I took from six feet away where like 10 Channel Fireball Hall of Famers or future Hall of Famers were debating the ins and outs of if a Chaos Orb was opened, how best to flip it. <laughs> That's funny you say that because I would think that there's uh, that would have already kind of not been solved, but like people would know that, especially those guys. I, I, apparently, they were using all updated errata on cards except Chaos Orb, which you, they were going to allow you to use in the old way. Wait, allow you to use in the old way? Yeah, because I think they 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 cleaned up those rules for ninety three ninety four, right? I don't know. Uh, flip it onto the battlefield from a height of at least one foot. If it turns over completely at least once, destroy all non-token permanents it destroys. I feel like there's got to be like a section in the comp rules about this, especially that kind of is what they're referring to. They made a point of basically saying like you were going to be able to use it like you could back in the day or okay. something. Um, they they didn't end up opening one, so it ended up being a moot point. But, dude, I've I've never been as excited at a, at an event as when they were, you know, they had a guy in gloves, yeah, popping open beta packs and flipping things like Underground Sea and Time Walk onto the table, and guys are just like drafting into ten thousand yeah. dollar chips. That was really cool, and it's it's funny <laughs> because uh, I mean, if you're a poker player, you watch people shuffle like a hundred thousand dollars worth of cards. Or of, ch- of poker chips, yeah. right? But it's not like exciting. The cards really have a, a je ne sais quoi of being this physical object. It's even though it's wor- not worth nearly as much as so many other things, it's relatively, it's just so cool. And I was thinking as I was watching it that love it or hate it, uh, you got to kind of admit that if this were, uh, if there were no reserve lists, this would not have been as exciting. 
Um, you know, they would still be the original beta cards, of course, and they'd still be valuable, but it'd be like, oh, yeah, he opened a time walk. That was really cool. Oh, yeah. Did you hear Joe open one of those in as his masterpiece from the set recently? Like it, it yeah. just you, you exactly. never, ever get to see those cards open, which is why it was so exciting. But if you take away the reserve list, you kind of lose the option for that, right? Like it's not that can't happen anymore. At least it's not special anymore. Uh, and and if they and if they had opened a beta Black Lotus last night, a surreptitious press release this morning to IGN or something could have like paid for the entire box they cracked to do this, right? Yeah. Um, as is the amount of excitement that rippled through the community worldwide on the basis of this um, has easily paid for those packs. And apparently they're doing it again at Gen Con um, later this year. So I imagine that will draw in quite a few additional people that might have skipped that tournament otherwise. Yeah, I mean, if you sat around and you watched this and you weren't planning on going to Gen Con and then you see this, you're like, that's awesome. Now I want to go. Of course, at this point, I don't know if you can get tickets to Gen Con, but uh, I mean, definitely it's pretty cool because you realize like, damn, this is probably never going to happen again. Other, Although it is really weird they're doing them back to back here. Uh, but aside from that, like where else are you finding 24 packs of beta? Yeah, and and eight eight zero into um, EV of say five to ten thousand dollars just sitting down at that table with potentially the upside to be uh, over a hundred thousand, and then the winner of the three round top eight got twenty five hundred cash guaranteed plus an alpha starter deck worth like fifteen thousand dollars. Well, wasn't it more cash than that? It was like fifteen. No, it was, was twenty five grand. No, no, it was twenty five grand. No, no, twenty five hundred. Twenty five hundred. Yeah. But plus a okay. $15,000 starter deck that, you know, if, if there aren't many beta packs lying around, there's even less alpha. Yes, I, I'm sorry. My friends yesterday told me 25000 They're dumb. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, as, as we said, like Stark walked away with potentially thirty or 40000 in gradable cards. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, pretty good event for him. No question about that. So, uh, so if you don't do what we say and leave yourself open to, uh, you know, roll with the adventures... Uh, you could end up like my father, who was triple booked for for events on Friday and Saturday pointlessly and ended up having to go get his product cashed in, um, but absolutely destroyed it in the history of draft. He only ran back three days because on the fourth he had to leave like early afternoon. So he was at the airport by mid morning. But he was like 19, four and three or something in history of draft. And they weren't doing a top eight. But if they were, I'm pretty sure he would have made it. And if they were doing it by record, I'd find it hard to believe anybody was ahead of him. Um, goes to show that obsessively playing magic online for 20 years will set you up pretty well for a mixed draft tournament. <laughs> Hard to imagine uh, a better payoff for him in terms of events that he could attend. Yeah. I mean, the funny, and he got ended up with like 600 plus tickets. So then, and the funny thing was along the way, I think it was on Friday, he got pulled aside by the head judge of the event um, because Somebody that the, a lesser judge determined that he was impersonating me. <laughs> now, whether somebody dropped like whispered in his ear or the guy had just just happened to know who I was and noticed the name on the slit, the slit slip walking by, I never did manage to establish. But regardless, they made a whole big deal of pulling him out of the event and delaying him for like 10 minutes and then demanded to see his ID. And then when he produced it, they claimed the ID was fake. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like he's guys there's a junior and a senior and this my father's probably played triple the amount of limited events that i have over the years he qualified for the pro tour at one point didn't go the like <laughs> and he made me with his body so 
if anybody's impersonating somebody, it's got to be the other way around, right? Gross. And, and is it gross? Just babies, Travis. Uh, absolutely gross. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. And then they ended up having to apologize to him and then give him time on the clock. And then they gave him a free draft, <clears throat> which I then promptly used to uh, enter a battle bond turn- <laughs> tournament with Cliff, which we won. <laughs> uh which I thought was poetic justice. Um, side note, partner mechanic in Battle Bond. Battle Bond is incredibly fun. And while you can get it, play it. Uh, drafting with somebody else, as long as you like that person, is awesome. Uh, and But the partner mechanic is so busted. Like We, we opened uh, the Planeswalkers, the blue one and the red one. And the whole thing with partner is that when you play one, the other guy gets to go get theirs out of their deck and put it in their hand. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. Like planeswalkers that go fetch planeswalkers for your partner are just silly. And we also managed to, we also managed to pull the uncommon red blue duo where the one creature for one and a tap does two damage to anything. And the blue one is a two four for three and a blue. And anytime you cast a spell, you get to untap something. That's uh that sounds pretty wild. I've had a lot of fun playing two headed giant events before. Uh and like win or lose, it's very amusing. We still tell a story about how uh my buddy and I played a two headed giant uh at the last Vegas. And at one point we after a great deal of deliberation decided that the correct play was to cast wrecking ball targeting an Eldrazi spawn token. Uh which like <laughs> our friends refused to believe us until we went through mm-hmm. like painstaking detail how that ended up being the right play. Uh, but like the point is we still tell, tell that story two years later and laugh about it and it's fun. Um, so the two headed giant events are really a great payoff, especially even better if it's a good format. So in terms of floor report uh, from a my- magic finance perspective, um, it's pretty interesting because they reduced the total number of vendors. I think they had about half what they've had in, in prior years. Um, but it was a good mix from all over the world. There was European vendors and a Chinese vendor um, and a bunch of small vendors that basically don't do They have no online presence whatsoever. Like one of the guys with the Ooh. deepest collection of graded power and, and dual lands and stuff from Alpha and Beta is a vendor called Chimera that has like no online presence, just a shop in I think Wisconsin or something. And basically only drags that box out for like two or three events a year. Huh. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And like the uh, several of the vendor, like, first of all, like I, I went there with a pile of stuff I thought I was going to buy list, but neither Abu nor Card Kingdom were there. And um, MTG deals was mysteriously on the floor, despite everybody seemingly thought thinking they were done. Um, and they were very aggressive on specific things. So they were picking up like um revised duels for instance at like really like high prices and a bunch of the other reserve list stuff that had spiked like bazaar and library and some other things they were paying more than everybody else moxes etc like a lot of unlimited power Sounds and like so forth plan um yeah they had a plan um and but there was like three or four vendors who had the most random binder configurations i've ever seen it was almost like they were trying to like keep you at the table by confusing you. Like nothing was organized by price, by color, by set, or by language. It was just random cards and binders, hmm. which is like, I love it. Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll hang out there all day long because I know there's no way you're keeping those up to date. Like it's impossible. You're just, whatever you purchase, you're just throwing in the binder and putting a price on. So I went 
through the course of mostly on Thursday, because I think it's like a good idea at these GPs, you want to get in there like 10, 11 a.m. on a Thursday when the vendors aren't super busy yet and snap up some of the hottest deals, stuff that spiked recently, things that are on your target list, what have you. Um, whoever was going around the floor buying up all the foil Najilas did that pretty early on Thursday. Um, and I picked up a bunch of cool stuff. I got like Russian foil reflector mage at 15, got a pair of those, got a foil secure the waist at 10. Um, on Cliff's recommendation from a couple of weeks back, picked up a bunch of spike uh, tournament grinder foils for six bucks um, out of uh, un, unhinged. No. Uh, unstable. 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 Um, a foil Russian Eily at 20, foil Russian uh, prized amalgam at 25, foil panharmonicons, anything under 10, I snapped them up. Foil insurrections at 20, lightning greaves original foils at 20. I got a ri- part, it's part of a deal. I got a Ristic foil study for free, like what? original printing, not Commander's Arsenal. Yeah. Because I've spent like 500 bucks in cards of that booth. So I asked for it as a throw in and they, they granted that wish. Um, Foil, the Hiri, the Harbinger pro, promo pre-release for 29 Picked up a couple of really nice looking Japanese foil uh, Ulamog, the Ceaseless Hungers for 60 bucks a piece. Um, I was targeting Stoneforge Mystic GP promos, uh, anything under 18, because I have a sneaking suspicion that card's going to get unbanned. Uh, and even if they reprint it, the GP promos should probably hit 40 if that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, Treetop Village foils were still lying around when they shouldn't have been um, under 15. Those were good grabs. General Tazri's been on the move, so foils under four. Lifecrafter's Bestiary was one of our picks a couple weeks ago, so I was grabbing those under four bucks. Uh, picked up a bunch of Rafellos Llanowar Emissaries at about 16. Uh, Urza's Incubators at 12. Managed to find some st- original strip mines in the 60 to $80 range that should be closer to 120 now. Got a couple of replenishes at 50 and then some chainers, edict foils, stitch in time foils, found a, co- uh, a pair of Japanese foil wear and tear. That card has just spiked over 30 or so in English. So I don't know what I'm going to get on the Japanese. Um, all told, uh, I only spent maybe a couple of hours at the booths, um, but it was well worth my time. The thing that actually most surprised me was I dragged all these cards down there. Like it must have been like two kilos worth of cards thinking I was going to sell them. And I ended up just not. I didn't sell a single card. Um, the closest I came was on the Library of Alexandria that I had buy-listed into through Card Kingdom six weeks ago, um, where there, there was already like a 60% ratchet on that deal into Library just as it was, uh, I had called it on cast where I said it was going to go from like 1000 to 1500 this year. But the card was on the move this weekend. Like most vendors had it priced over 2000 for anything that was would grade like eight plus. And when I went to shop it around to various vendors, I got numbers anywhere from 900 to 1700. Final conversation I had was, was with DJ at the 90, uh, 95 MTG booth, and they didn't want to pay more than a thousand on it. Um, and they were surprised that anybody was offering over 1500. So seems like a card that is absolutely going to get there felt like it was in motion. So I just went ahead and put my copy back in my pocket since they were, people were telling me it was probably good, could probably grade at an 8.5. So I just didn't bother. And I also had like an unlimited uh, signed underground C um, that felt like it was premature to sell Uh, candelabras. They only were offering like 600 on despite the card supposedly being over a thousand. Um, I looked at my two of those today, uh, and I think it should be worth two thousand. By the way, 
So I, I think I just played the whole thing wrong. Instead of bringing a bunch of like spiking reserve lift stuff that hasn't settled yet, I should have been bringing in like standard and modern stuff if I was holding it and and exiting that. Like I think if you had a pile of Carns or whatever um, that you got in on early, it would have been a decent weekend. Some modern stuff that hasn't floated down um, or is at its pinnacle and in some danger of being reprinted within the year probably would have been pretty good things to unload. But unless you were desperate for cash, like a lot of this stuff that's been on the move just felt premature to exit, or at least not to these dealers, given how much Card Kingdom and Abu are giving when you trade in online. Yeah, it's, um, I know the sensation where you're like, ah, this moved in price recently and should be worth some money. But you're like, ah, I still doesn't feel like it's the right time to sell. And I run into it with the masterpieces a lot where it's like, it's gone up 20%, but it's, still doesn't feel correct right um so it doesn't surprise I mean, me I have, you you didn't you got there and decided you didn't want to unload anything the masterpieces is a good is a good reference point because i have this rule where if i'm like holding 20 of something and the buy-in was relatively steep like 75 seems trivial for masterpiece silvering now but when i was buying them i was only mostly sure that was going to work out um and so i sold them at 110, 120, 140, 180, 200 up the ramp. And that's typically what I'll do is I'll test each new plateau and see if it holds. And if something rots at a new plateau, then I I, I might consider then buy listing my remainder. Um, like for instance, I, I considered buy listing Horizon Canopy Expeditions at one point because I was having they they weren't they just weren't moving. It's like six hundred dollars for a playset. I could get like $10 more than I paid for them six months ago if I buy listed them. And I almost pulled the trigger on that multiple times before they finally sold out for me on eBay. Um, But and that's a good rule of thumb to have to kind of work your way up the plateau ramp. Um, But in, in, in a lot of these cases with the reserve list stuff, like I just don't see the downward pressure that's going to pop the bubble everybody thinks is in play. No, and I, you know, we might see a little bit of the wind out of the sails out of this stuff uh, once we get to the other side of the Pro Tour, because um, that's you know the legacy G, the legacy Pro Tour, and some part of some part of Vegas, and some part of some of the demand behind these cards might be partly Vegas and partly the Pro Tour, and people getting excited about that stuff in general. Uh, but I don't see them. I don't see them cratering, right? Like, and we didn't see them all of this stuff crater the last time this happened two years ago. Uh, and it's not going to happen this time either. It's, it's pretty much here, here to stay for the most part. Uh, all these cars are finding new plateaus. Um, and it's really just a question of how long you're comfortable waiting to pull the trigger. Uh, and the longer you can wait, the better basically. So two things that are connected. One, uh, for when you, if you've never been to Vegas and you end up going to a future GP Vegas, keep this in mind. It was like 110 degrees outside, but the convention center was like 40 degrees cooler. So make sure you got a sweater. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> because the, the, the switch, the switch off from like in like five feet from the front door is insane in the, in the temperature variance. So I ended up, I would end up like getting cool drinks while I was on my way there. But once I was there, I wanted a coffee. Um, so I could warm back up. So I made it a habit of when my dad was playing in his drafts, I would leave my bag and I just go hang around the dealer booth. I just wanted to get a sense of what people were thinking, talking about, targeting what they were buying. I wanted to spend some time where I wasn't thinking about buying and selling myself and just listen. And repeatedly, I saw people buy high value reserve list cards where the only reasonable explanation was that they were buying them for their EDH decks or their legacy decks or they were collectors. And I would say the the average was more EDH and collections than it was legacy players for mm-hmm. sure. And 
I spent some time hanging out with the EDH rec crew, playing some games with them, um, got to test out my Maldratha, and then talk to a bunch of EDH, EDH players along the way there. And pretty much anybody that was asking me or talking about dual lands was looking at acquiring them so that they would have future access to them for EDH. Which, which is a really big data point um, if, you, uh, if you believe it, if you trust it, because uh, dual prices are essentially set by legacy at the moment. But as soon as you move to EDH demand driving those prices primarily, you're going to see uh, all the smaller ones essentially, like Plateau and what have you, uh, really move because they're going to catch up to the other ones. Yeah, and we've already see, seen some of that going on. Um, you know, I've, we've talked about Tundra and Bayou probably closing in on 500. Um, I didn't see it. It was hard to find both of those cards in near mint revised form under four on the floor. Um, and there was a lot of focus from players, which is to be expected on, you know, suboptimal copies. So picking up MP and LP. Um, but a lot of that stuff doesn't tend to recirculate into the vendors because they they pay a lot less percentage wise on that stuff. So they're happy to sell you an MP at MP price. But when you go back into buy list, it, you're going to get a much better ratchet on your near mint copy that they might be able to grade than you ever are on your MP. And so I think that what that does is it, it keeps MP uh, cards out of buy list deals because the number they're offering to somebody who shows up with them is just feels so scandalously low versus the like posted near mint price on TCG. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, for instance, I had taken the deal on the li- library at 1700, um, which I really only passed because I figure maybe I can sell it over 2000 at retail in a few months. Um, then, you know, I would have felt pretty good on that because like if you subtract fees and whatever, I'm pretty close to what I'm going to get anyway. Um, but if I had brought them an MP library, the offer would have been closer to 600. That's, uh, that's a good point. How do you feel in general about SP reserve list power, those types of cards. Cause like, you know, the, the near mint is so hard to find and it feels like there are very good deals out there on the played stuff, but it's tough. It's really tough to get a sense for what a, the true condition of a card is. Like it can be marked as MP or SP, but you're like, do I actually, is, is it actually, and also how much of a discount you should be taking off of that. And it's even trickier when there's no near mint copies, like as yeah, a good reference tough. point, I have a hell of a time figuring out what to do with that stuff. It's tricky. I think you treat SP as the most the copies most likely to be played by people that are serious about owning one but don't want to pay the premium for the gradable. Mm-hmm. So, and what you're looking for is that it's got some edge wear and not much else, and it's just kind of got like a spot of that. So, for instance, I was looking. At, I almost bought um, from Galactus, the vendor from Italy, um, who had a real mixed bag of stock. Like they they weren't even promising a trading credit of any kind. <laughs> Like, I don't know how they managed to buy anything this weekend because they, they seem to be like purposefully dickish about pr- purchasing cards. Well, they're Italian. Um, but, they, <laughs> but, they, but they had a truly SP uh, Mox Pearl that they wanted 1600 for when everybody else was asking 1800 or 1900 Um and if and if I could have buy listed the library in towards that at a number I liked, then I probably would have done that deal. Um, I had already spent through all my cash because I think I th- I've showed up with about 1500 in cash and blew through it pretty quickly. Um, wasn't too hard to, I mean, I, you really could have gone, gone, gone on for days if you had a bottomless well of, of cash. And I saw a lot of activity also between, between. Vendors. Oh yeah. Yeah. So like when, when, when we were looking at the, um, my dad's trying to track down the, the last four cards for his alpha set. And the one he was willing to cough up the money for was the alpha badlands. If he could find a nine or so, 
um, and he wanted to pay like somewhere between two and three thousand. So of course, Daniel Chang at Vintage Ma- Magic quotes seventy five hundred for his nine point five. Um, this other guy quotes forty five hundred, and he's also got a nine, which he wouldn't give us a price on until he, I supposedly go, you know. He's going to go try to triangulate, but he doesn't have any data points, so he's kind of struggling. <laughs> so we walked away from the booth and said we'd come back later. And when I circulated back, some vendor had snapped mm-hmm. it up. And the guy wouldn't even tell me what they paid because he was embarrassed that it was lower than what we would so, have offered. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you've got vendors kind of running around. Like I saw Rudy doing deals. You know, he's got his got his black suit jacket on and he's he's schmoozing people and and saying, I like the look of your face and whatever. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I got to tell you, I caught a photo of him in a jack in a blazer and sandals. And uh, I don't care who yeah. you are. That is inappropriate. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there, there was a lot of action cross booth um, and the vendors said like the weekend was pretty solid overall, but. I, I think that if you take it in context, like I think dollars spent per player were actually much higher. So the the modern event was like had a computer problem for three hours at one point. I think it was either Friday or Saturday, um, the main event. And that put a lot of players on the floor buying when they could have been playing. Um, so that helped the vendors. Um, but they also just did, if, if you took it like, compared it to when there was like seven to 10,000 people there at the Las Vegas, they still did almost as well or better, depending on which vendor you talk to, um, with less people in play. Part of that might be that when there's throngs and throngs of people, and I've seen this a lot at um, our version of San Diego Comic-Con here in Toronto, it's called Fan Expo. It's the second largest thing like that in North America. And on a Saturday, you know, you're, the aisles are narrow enough that midday Saturday, when you should be making the most money, you actually make nothing. Because your booth is so inundated with bodies just trying to get from point A to point B, that the people that are actually in that area to shop at specific vendors can't get hmm. in there and they just turn away and go elsewhere. Um, and so there's a thing where there's like a saturation point on a convention floor where if you get past too many bodies per square inch, then sales actually start dropping. And given that this, there was, you could always just step up to a booth and do a deal throughout this whole weekend. Okay. They did a lot of business. Interesting. I would not have kind of thought about that, but it makes sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I guess we can probably, you know, round up on Vegas is, Great event, lots of cool stuff going on. It's good buying. Lots of people told me they they had good luck selling. Somebody, oh, I know one thing, selling story I wanted to tell since I sold nothing. Somebody said they had unloaded Serendib uh, Afrits from Arabian Nights for close to 500 a piece, and they sold like 12 of them. Wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah. I think the buy list at Abu on that is, let me just see, 500. <sighs> And that, that, that's a card that my father gave me for my birthday last year when he thought of it as a $50 card. He gave me that and Arabian Nights City of Brass <laughs> and thought he was giving me like a normal size present. <laughs> and now the two of those cards combined are like a grand. <laughs> so I waved I waved off for their presents because uh, I think he's already done his duty. I would say so. Uh, man, your dad's collection is pretty nuts. It's going to be... Uh... Yeah, it's... I, I don't know. It, it's tricky though, right? Because even him, like I mean, he's a doctor. He's got disposable income, but he's not a you know multimillionaire or anything. Um, it's going to be tough for him to like justify pulling the trigger on the, the last couple of lotuses he needs. <laughs> They're uh-huh. like beta lotus on the floor in good like gradable condition was like twenty thousand yeah. plus. Um, I saw a twenty six thousand one, a twenty three thousand one, a twenty nine thousand one. If you go to the vintage magic booth, you're talking about premium prices. 
um, deals are, if you want MPHP stuff, you can start doing deals. Cause I think, I think we all know that that stuff rots in the case for a lot longer, but the really, really nice stuff, definitely no reason to wait. It's not going to get any better. No, and that's, that's the, the tricky part is it always feels like it's just out of, probably for a lot of people always feels like it's just out of reach, but it's not getting any closer. <laughs> it's just, it keeps going. Uh, and you know, the right time to buy it was always yesterday. Yeah. All right. So let's just spend a little bit of time on M19 spoilers of note. We had two big mythics that were revealed today for M19. Mm-hmm. Exactly the kind of reprints we would think would show up here. Crucible of Worlds, the artifact that lets you play lands out of your graveyard, is being reprinted at Mythic, and Scape Shift, an important modern card, is also being reprinted at Mythic. Now both of these cards are in standard for the better part of a year. Yeah, uh, and not not surprising to see these. Um, and if you read Rosewater's article today, they're trying to use these core sets uh, to be quite specific with what they're trying to reprint and um, and create. So uh, that's worth a gander to, uh, because you'll, you'll get some good insight there. Um, you know, I think we're going to get reprints out of these core sets now that are very specific for modern, uh, as well as some creation of cards that are specific for modern, um, which is what, which is the other angle he talked about where they're going to kind of try and use a rare and mythic slot to just print cards targeted at modern, like even more specifically than they do today, which is pretty interesting. Um, Scape shift at, at mythics kind of an interesting play. I, I wouldn't have expected that if you told me they were going to reprint it, but I guess it it uh saves people who already own copies from getting completely slammed because if it was it rare they would have you know dropped to like four or five bucks basically and the people who would paid fifty dollars for them would have been just probably a little annoyed uh so i would imagine that's where that's coming from crucible uh unlikely to have an impact on standard for the most part typically has not been i don't think a major part of any standard it was legal in I could be wrong about that, uh, but we'll definitely do a good job of alleviating some of the price pressure on that, at least. Yeah, and I think that these niche expensive cards are great choices for this kind of scenario. Like the prof to Academy and uh, Professor posted like, oh, look, they reprinted these. They're learning. Yo, I yeah, like, I caught that. I, didn't, <laughs> and I, was I like, think I rolled my eyes when I read that. Yeah, so did I. Because, I mean, I love the prof, but the the... His thinking that he, that he, we, all of us know better than wizards is silly. Yeah. They know exactly what they're doing here. Like these, these aren't like they finally clued in that they could reprint these. This is like, we have a set where we can reprint really anything we want because it, it doesn't have to have a block theme. It's a mix. They're doing the same thing they did with Origins, right? Where it's a mixture of planes. Like they're just taking tidbits from other sets that were leftovers. It, I mean, what people aren't reading between the lines here is that a lot of these cards were probably on the back burner that didn't make prior sets. Yeah. So it makes it like it really like makes these more cost efficient for them to develop. And they can set up the commons and uncommons so that they're new player friendly. And they can throw a couple of ex- previously expensive cards in the mix the prices the price floor on them will drop dramatically like both crucible and scape shift are going to see massive price cuts like they'll be down 50 60 70 percent in short order here um, uh scape shift yeah scape shift for sure i think crucible is probably a little more resilient i think it's like crucible's never played as a four of no no it's a, it's a one of like one. mostly edh card so people will pick it up for sure but i think like i look at it as like similar to something like gilded lotus but Gilded Lotus was a rare. So if Gilded Lotus had been printed out of Mythic and Dominaria, it would be relatively similar. This gets a little bit of increased juice because it's a summer small set. Um, and we know that summer sets 
like Conspiracy 2, like Battle Bond, like this. If there's anything really good in them, they will recover faster and bottom out lower because less of this product will be sold than, uh, you know, Ravnica or, or um, whatever fall set you're, you want to compare it to. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think Crucible Foils will be a thing. I think you, somebody was asking me about Scapeshift on Twitter. I think you just leave Scapeshift alone. I mean, that's a niche deck in modern that only one of the decks runs the card. It's not Scapeshift is not really used in EDH and it's not really good in any other format. So of the two, I'd be more interested in seeing how low the foils for Crucible. I uh, completely agree. I uh, am not really interested in Scape Shift, and I've kind of moved off of combo pieces in modern in general, unless they're like a breakout, never before seen card. Um, yeah, it's all about the utility cards that are going to be show up again and yeah. again in deck list after deck list. It's something like what Crucible? Search for Ascanta C- comes to mind is the kind of thing that like any blue deck can find a slot for a copy of that. Because mm-hmm. the upside is so high in the late game for a control deck. Yeah, and I think a Crucible will definitely survive better if only because every player out there wants a copy of it. Uh, right, like there's... It only ever runs one or two, but every Magic player would like to own one. Um, I, I just... You, made, you mentioned the, his Twitter comment, the they're learning, and it's just like imagining like Rosewater and Forsyth sitting at a table staring at like dis- a pile of disheveled papers and going, huh. I guess they do like it when we print expensive cards like <laughs> like this somehow like they're just becoming aware of this. This is an epiphany that players want yeah. very expensive cards and cheap packs like just... my, my, my criticism of the point mm. is hinged is like is to be more specific is there's a reason that it's these cards and not like Liliana of the Veil or Tarmogoyf again, because a those cards are harder to print into standard. If you put a kind of random thing like Scapeshift or Crucible into the format and you're not going to play lean into those themes with upcoming sets, then it just kind of floats there as money you can get out of a booster pack. It's at Mythic, so it doesn't really mess with the draft or limited formats. Um, and it's not something anyone's going to be disappointed to open, even if it doesn't provide great synergy within the set. Mm-hmm, Whereas yeah. something like Liliana the Veil, you got to be pretty confident that that's not going to upset the whole balance of the format. Oh, that warps um, your format. Right, sure. and 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 they looked at Liliana in a pri- in Origins, I believe it was, um, yeah, it was a while and, ago. and 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 chose to not not proceed. So the um, you know it shouldn't surprise anybody if you understand all of those factors that it's going to be these kind of random expensive cards that they can th- that used to be rares. <laughs> so I, I don't know why anybody's like cheering. They're they're continuing the trend of moving rares to Mythic, um, and and ensuring that the price drops are relatively limited. Yeah um yeah all right let's uh let's wrap this up it has been quite a while good vegas wrap up uh so james where can our listeners find you you guys can find me on twitter at mdg critic as well as via my weekly articles on mdgprice.com and i'm travis allen i'm on twitter at wizard bumpin b-u-m-p-i-n i do the watchtower every monday at mtg price and you can also find me on the webcast cartel aristocrats I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. I'm in a good mood this week. Vegas was good to everybody involved. Let's uh, I'll throw out a $10 discount to the first few people that ask to become Pro Traders this week. Hit me up on Twitter. Uh, via dm and i'll get you hooked up if you want that um (laughs) now what you'll be able to do is if anyone sends you a message before we unlock this 
and asked to be a pro trader, you can be like, well, how are you listening to this? Who shared the link, buddy? (laughs) (laughs) Fair. All right. Well, it was uh, it was a lot of fun catching up on Vegas, James. I'm sorry I missed it, but maybe next year. Uh, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you guys all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.